This episode is sponsored by artandtheology.org, a blog run by Victoria Emily Jones. Art and Theology seeks to help the church rediscover its rich heritage in the visual, literary, and musical arts, and to open it up to the work of contemporary artists whose giftings can enable us to see God in new ways. And by our friends at Hope Writers. If you've ever thought about writing a book, did you know that you are already on the writing journey? We've partnered with our friends at HopeWriters.com to share a free 30-second quiz to see where you are in your writing journey and to help you move forward in getting your story out of your mind and into the hearts and minds of others. To learn more and to take their free 30-second quiz, you can go to HopeWriters.com quiz. That's HopeWriters.com quiz. In our culture at large, and indeed for centuries, people have recognized in the arts and the artistic experience transcendence. They will very often use language of spirituality or I was taken outside myself. But when it comes to the transcendence of God and the Christian faith, I want to say the Bible urges us to think of that in particular ways. Jeremy Begbie is Thomas A. Langford Distinguished Professor in Theology at Duke Divinity School. He is also senior member at Wolfson College, Cambridge and an affiliated lecturer in the Faculty of Music at the University of Cambridge. He is founding director of Duke Initiatives in Theology and the Arts, one of the main aims of which is to foster theological artistic links between Duke and Cambridge. Dr. Begbie was educated largely in Scotland and holds piano performing and teaching qualifications. He is also an oboist and a fellow of the Royal School of Church Music. He is published extensively with a particular interest on the interplay between the arts and theology, bringing to light the different ways they can illuminate and benefit each other. I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Begbie at Duke Divinity School and talk with him about his thoughts on music, art, and the transcendence of God. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Dr. Begbie's work and for links to our sponsors. This is my conversation with Dr. Jeremy Begbie on art and the transcendence of God. Well, Dr. Begbie, it's an honor to have you on Makers and Mystics, and I appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. It's delightful to be here. Thank you for asking me. Yes, sir. Well, why don't we start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are for those who may not be as familiar with your work. Sure. I teach theology at Duke Divinity School, and before that I was teaching in Cambridge in the UK and in St. Andrews in Scotland. And I was a musician by training originally, and when I came to faith when I was about 19, I felt a strong call to ordination in the church and a strong call to teach theology as well. But I've tried to keep that side of me and the musical side in play and talking to each Mm -hmm. other. Well, I knew that music was a big part of your journey, and so that might even be a good place for us to start. Yeah. I'd love to know how music has played a key role in your work as a theologian and how you see this interplay between music and theology. How does that work for you? Well, I think it works in in three ways, I found pretty early on. When I first came to faith, everybody said to me, or a lot of people said to me, uh, well, now you can write hymns for the church, and now you can write songs for the church. Because people naturally think of music and worship as the first kind of application of, of music and faith. And that's quite right and proper. And I have spent a lot of time in music and worship circles. 
uh, ranging across a wide variety of styles, actually, I believe, in a broad spectrum of styles. Uh, the uh, second way is what I call theology for music. That is when you begin with a, a biblical passage or a doctrine or something that's explicitly Christian, and you say, how does that work itself out in music? It might be I don't know, a belief about the person of Christ, and you say, well, how are we going to express that in music? How is it going to affect the way we evaluate music, perhaps? That's what I call uh, theology for music. Then in more recent years, I've explored a thing called music for theology, is where you look very carefully at something in the way music works, uh, something about music itself, and you say, how can that help us discover and think through more carefully the gospel? So how can it help us do theology? Uh, those are the three main ways in which, which I found it. And I found that largely through teaching, though that's how it's happened. It's through teaching, visiting churches, schools, universities, and indeed playing a lot of music. Uh, practice has always gone with together with theory for me. I'm trying to keep those together. Mm-hmm. The third part of that really fascinates me because a lot of the music that I write tends to be instrumental. Yeah. And so I've always been fascinated with how non-vocal expressions of music play a part in expressing theological truth. And yeah. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Well, I think the first thing to say is you don't have to have words attached to music in order for it to glorify God. If we do music well, and we do it beautifully, and we do it with, um, indeed, integrity, that's quite capable of bringing glory to God. You don't have to have an evangelistic message attached to it for it to honor Christ and to honor the gospel. That's the first thing. But I think we can go further than that. I think we can say that there are things about the way we make and hear music that have what I would call theological resonances, mm-hmm. and theological power. One of the most obvious that I've often explored is, is the relationship between music and the Trinity, that if you think about the difference between the way we see the world and hear the world, there's a really very striking difference. In the way we see the world, we see things as distinct, discrete objects which occupy a locatable space. I'm looking at a chair there. The chair is there. It's not somewhere else. And if I bring another chair anywhere near it, the second chair is going to knock the first out. Or, well, could you merge them? You probably couldn't merge them. They can't occupy the same space at the same time and be two chairs. You can't have red and yellow in the same space, um, occupying the same space, and see them as red and yellow. Right. They either hide each other or they'll merge into something else, like orange. So that's the way we see the world. There's nothing wrong with that, of course, but the way we hear the world is very different from that because when you hear a sound, a single sound, if I were to play a note on the piano, that fills the whole of the heard space, the oral space. Um, We don't say of a sound, oh, I hear it in this part of my hearing, but I don't hear it in that other part of my heard space. It fills the whole thing. It's not a note that we hear is not like a bounded object with edges to it. It it's fills the whole thing. Bring a second note in, and that second note also fills the same heard space, yet we hear it as distinct. Mm-hmm. You bring a third in, you have three notes in the same space, uh, but recognizably distinct. So you can do that with a world of sound. Mm-hmm. You can't, it's very hard to do visually. And that seems to me very, very resonant of the, of the Trinity, um, that this church for centuries has struggled with how do you think threeness and oneness together? Right. 
And that's rooted in the New Testament. Now, how do, when the, John's Gospel speaks about the Father in the Son, the Son in the Father, that's very hard to visualize. Mm-hmm. But two notes sounding together gives a very good representation yeah. of that because with the notes sound in and through each other, they're not next to each other. And so music opens up these very Trinitarian, profoundly biblical, I believe, Christian ways of thinking. Uh, it's not that the eye is a bad thing or visual is, is a bad thing. It's simply that you can do some things through the ear that you can't do through the eye. And I think a lot of theology has been over-relying on our visual sense mm. and the way we see the world and that our ears can tell us a heck of a lot. Yeah. That's such a great insight, especially for our modern culture, which tends to be a very visually dominated culture. Oh, yeah. You know, to depict how music expresses theological truth. Yes. And really to show us how all of the senses and how all of the arts can express theological understanding. Um, You use the phrase, a multi-sensory experience of God. Yeah. And this comes from your book, Redeeming Transcendence in the Arts, Bearing Witness to the Triune God. And I'm currently working through this book now. And so I'm curious if you could elaborate on how you see the role of the arts as bearing witness to the transcendence of God, not just the audible or the visual, but that multi-sensory experience of God. Tell us about that and some of the heart behind why you wrote this book. Yes, of course. The point of writing of the book is to recognize that in our culture at large, and indeed for centuries, people have recognized in the arts and the artistic experience um, transcendence. They will very often use language of spirituality, or I was taken outside myself, or I have a sense of the infinite, or whatever. That thousands speak this way about the arts, that it gives them an experience of what they would call transcendence, Mm -hmm. what we would naturally call transcendence. I want to take that very seriously. But when it comes to the transcendence of God and the Christian faith, I want to say the Bible urges us to think of that in particular ways, wonderful ways, but very particular ways, that the Bible doesn't think of God as a kind of bare infinity, But the Bible thinks of God, of course, as Trinity and as a God supremely of love. So I'm trying to rethink in that book transcendence, but in in Christian biblical terms, rather than the way our culture will tend to think of transcendence as just a kind of bare otherness, like a kind of naked, amorphous infinity. The Bible has no such conception of amorphous infinity. It speaks of God, uh, the God of Jesus Christ. When we do that, I think we find transcendence has two strands of meaning. The first is otherness, that God is other than the world. That doesn't mean God is separate from the world or indifferent or totally apart or having nothing to do with the world. It just means that God is other than the world. Uh, The second strand is God's uncontainability, that God cannot be trapped by the world. God is free. God, we can never get our fingers around God. The world can't imprison God. Now, if we rethink those in Christian terms, we have to say we have to do that in terms of love. To say that God is Trinity, one of the things that that has to mean is that God is love in his innermost being. The Father loves the Son, loves the, fa- the Son loves the Father in the Spirit from all eternity. And so God's otherness and God's uncontainability must be understood in, that ter- in those terms. When God is other than the world, God is loving the world. 
He's not just other in a bare sense. God is committed to the otherness of the world as other. So we needn't be ashamed of being creatures. We're not gods. The, the created world is not God. So when the created world is really doing its thing and doing its well, it's glorifying God in its very createdness. When the arts are really doing their thing and glorifying God, they're not trying to be God. They're a bit of this created world, you could say, doing a wonderful thing. And when artists make things, they're making things that glorify God in their very createdness. Um, I mean, some examples, you say, other, other than music, uh, a lot of people point to the Dutch landscape tradition of the 17th century, uh, yeah, 17th century. When the landscape is painted as glorifying God, but it's not painted as divine, it's painted in all its beauty, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful as created. And so when it's glorifying God, it's not trying to be something other than created. But at the same time, Dutch landscape painting is very realistic. It's realistic that this world has been infected, corrupted, nature included, by us. So it's not sentimental. It's saying there's an underlying beauty, but it's an aching beauty. Mm -hmm. Creation is still to reach its goal. That's an example, I think, where art can witness to the otherness, that is God's loving commitment to the world as other. Uh, in a powerful way. But it can happen through any of the arts as yeah. well. Artists are a funny lot, you know, I mean, <laughs> apart from yourself, Stephen, uh, because they're always trying to be God. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's a, it seems built into the human condition, sadly. Mm-hmm. It's called sin. Uh, when we try to jump out of our finitude. Right. And that, that's the kind of primal sin. Now, as far as uncontainability is concerned as well, well, I think music is probably the supreme art form in that respect because... Um, because it's always kind of bursting beyond language. It's always bursting beyond its own bounds. But again, this is all about love, that the uncontainability of God is the uncontainability of his love, of his abundant commitment to the world and to each other. So whenever we are reminded of God's goodness in the arts, in a way we realize we can't contain that goodness, um, Bach's music is the obvious example, I think, of that. That he when, he when he's when he's setting a text from the resurrection, for instance, he just goes on adding bits, mm-hmm. as it were, to say, whatever you say, whatever you write about this, there's always more. Mm-hmm. So the 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 best art that witnesses to the uncontainability of God is always exceeding its bounds. It's always saying, We've said a bit, we've done a bit, but there's always more. And I think built into the arts is this thing, what I call, um, well, simply metaphor, the the idea that um, when you bring two things together that don't really belong together, that's what metaphor is about, you create a little explosion of meaning. And however much you say about it, it'll always burst out of what you say about it. Art is endlessly evocative, elusive. That doesn't mean it can mean anything you want, but it means it always means more than you can say. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, can be a powerful witness to the God who always exceeds anything that we can say and anything that we can do. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you along those lines, because you were talking about transcendence and how the Bible handles the transcendence of God, and that it's not just this ethereal oh. force, but that it's a triune being. Yeah. 
And I began to think that art, for a lot of people that don't accept the witness of the Christian faith, art becomes a surrogate religion in so. many ways. And I think that... For me, for many years, it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was as well. And I think it's because, well, you use this phrase in your book, our culture's spiritual impulse. Yes. That there's something inside the human being that longs to connect with something greater than itself. Absolutely. And so I'm curious how you see art from a Christian perspective as being able to speak into that longing of the human heart. That's a great point. Um, yeah, that longing is undoubtedly there. Charles Taylor speaks about our culture as inhabiting what he calls an imminent frame, which he means a way of looking at the world that doesn't need God. Need necessarily be atheists. Uh, a lot of Christians spend their life in the imminent frame. That is, they're kind of practicing atheists day to day. God doesn't actually play a major part in, in decisions or whatever. I mean, myself included. <laughs> so it's a kind of practical atheism our culture has got used to. Um, but 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 whether an atheist or not, most of us have deep down, I believe, are, are you could say hardwired uh, to believe that there must be more than this, that the world simply can't explain itself. A lot of it's interesting. A lot of scientists they've done. I don't know about this country, but in the UK they've done surveys among scientists. Of a very high percentage of scientists read their horoscope every morning. I mean, high-ranking physicists, for example. It's as if, yes, that can do so much explaining, but there's an awful lot it can't explain. Mm -hmm. And actually, I know many, many scientists who are passionate about the arts for this sort of reason. Uh, of course, science doesn't have to, doesn't, the scientist doesn't have to believe that the world is a closed system. There's nothing in science which says that, but there's a pressure of our culture to say, well, that's going, the world can explain itself. It doesn't need God, basically, on that. And the arts, then, people will jump into very often because the arts, precisely because they can't contain the realities that they speak about, because they're endlessly evocative and endlessly elusive, they seem to speak of another possibility. The arts resist something called reductionism, or what I, I call it uh, nothing buttery, is when you say, well, we are nothing but physics and chemistry, we are nothing but atoms and neurons and protons or whatever. That flat way of looking at the world, the arts naturally resist. Yeah. Um, the way of looking at the world when you think if you can analyze something into its constituent parts, you've explained it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the arts don't work that way. They put things together. They don't take things apart. Right, right. So, so the arts naturally resist reductionism. And I think we as Christians need to tap into that. Mm -hmm. But we need to tap into it as Christians. <laughs> right. <laughs> and not at that point be ashamed of the gospel. That doesn't mean you download heavy doctrine every time you have a conversation with an agnostic artist. Of course not. It means in the back of your mind, or at least informing your mind, are notions of transcendence, mm -hmm. spirit, God, <laughs> otherness, all these words. But uh, the back of your mind, they, they should be informed scripturally and in terms of the tradition. Now, I'll give you an example. I think I mentioned the book there, though you may not have got there yet. So <laughs> it's right at the end. You have to persevere to the end. It's a story of an artist I met in Vancouver once when I was teaching there. He came, a, a delightful man, painter, a very good painter. Mm -hmm. He came to my class, not a Christian, very explicitly not a Christian, came to some of the classes I was teaching in a, in a college there. And he asked to come and see me after one of the classes. 
So, so we shouted, and he said, I'm intrigued by your sort of Christian thing. He said, the other day, I was walking back to my apartment after your class, and I looked around me, and of course, Vancouver, I mean, these mountains and the blue sea, and I mean, it was just incredible, dazzling landscape. And he said, I had a sudden intuition that this didn't have to be. <laughs> it didn't have to be like this either. Yeah. And he said, does your Christianity thing have anything to say to that? Yeah. Funny you should say that, I said. <laughs> and then came the talk. Now, there was heaps of conversation before that when he talked about his work as an artist. Because he was looking at the world as an artist, right. you see. He wasn't just looking at it as just a kind of landscape on its own. He was thinking about actually how he would paint it, how he would bring out his sense of the, how can I put it, the givenness of it in a, in a very rich sense. It didn't have to be. So he was looking at it as an artist. He had this intuition of transcendence. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a disservice for me to say, yes, that's just God, and don't worry about all this Bible and Christian and dogma, and, you know, so forget all that. You're already there. You're a Christian, really. You just don't know it. That's nonsense. Right. It's equally a bad strategy to say it's deeply sinful, that, and you shouldn't be having these thoughts. Now forget all that arty stuff as well and go to a proper Bible class and you'll learn what's what. No, of course not. You take that intuition and you say, by the grace of God, you hope there's some really good stuff there, and there <laughs> seems to be. Now, how can the Holy Spirit work through what I say to bring that intuition into, really fr into a fruitful conversation where he's made more curious about the Christian faith and what it can offer? So in that situation, I talked about, yes, well, of course it's got something to say because it says that God is a giving God in his very nature, that love belongs to who he is, right. um, that he created this world not because he had to, the world didn't have to exist, but he created it out of love. And he created it as a gift. And that's the kind of God we're dealing with, and that's the kind of transcendence that I believe is now breaking through to you mm -hmm. as an artist as you walk home after my lecture. Right. That's what I want to believe. Yeah. Um, and that was a great conversation. He was, yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah. Well, what you're saying really speaks to even my own sense of the arts and the place of the arts in Christian history right now. There's just in my experience traveling a lot and talking with so many people, sure. we've come to a place in culture where people may be suspicious of a Christian ethic or suspicious of a Christian doctrine, but the arts, it's a new platform for conversation. Absolutely. And just as you mentioned, this artist who intuited something yeah. within the work itself. That's and a great phrase. I love it. Yeah, the platform right. for a conversation. Um, uh, I, I, at Cambridge, I teach in, in the music department there, and um, I'm teaching uh, atheists, agnostics, or whatever. But my goodness, I find if I can speak their musical language, which I can, and, and both theoretically and, and I can you know, practice music as well, they are very, very open then to speaking about the things of God, or at least asking me about them. Um, I've, I don't think I've ever had any serious resistance to that. Mm -hmm. If you can speak the musical language, right. if you can see the world, hear the world as they see and hear it, uh, and then interpret the Christian faith in those terms, then you, you, you really are... To, and of course, I learn a great deal in the process. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not a one-way thing. Absolutely. You, you suddenly, oh, golly, there are things in the Bible I never saw before, 
the things about Christian doctrine I never quite realized before. So it's a, it's a two-way street. Yes. What doesn't work if I say, oh, I'm not going to say anything about my Christian faith. We're all basically religious and um, you just carry on with your own private religious belief or unbelief because that's, you know, that's no good. Right. And it's no good apologizing for Christian, uh, simply apologizing for Christianity's sins, although you've got to do that, of course. Uh, it, it's no good saying, I've no right to be telling you anything about Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's, that's no good either. They, they just don't respect that. Right. That's just, they don't respect that. Um, they want a serious conversation. And of course, so many musicians, as you, as you suggest, have intuited something in their music that, oh yes, okay, it often turns into idolatry. You know, they'll often speak about it in, in terms that do suggest they're worshipping the music. Mm-hmm. And that they're not yet ready to go any further than that. Yeah. So sometimes you have to break into that a bit and say, you know, do you realize it might be dangerous here? I mean, after all, for, for years, you know, music did everything that I thought a self-respecting religion could and ought to do. Right. Um, it was only when I, when I met Christ that, hey, wait a minute, it's a bit more to it than this. <laughs> and I was, I, it wasn't wholly idolizing music, but I was doing a lot of idolizing of the musical experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a danger there you've got to watch. Right, right. But it wasn't all bad by any means. Well, I want to ask you a question again on this subject of transcendence and how that interplays with the arts, because when I think of transcendence, I do think of something that goes beyond limits, something that's not containable. And so in that regard, I can see certain characteristics of the nature of God, but at the same time, there's a particularity or an eminence or that incarnational aspect of God. And so I know from you or what I'm gathering from the book, Redeeming Transcendence in the Arts, Yeah, I want to know what does it mean to redeem transcendence in the arts? Because you're saying something more than there's just this intuition. You're saying there's a particularity that distinguishes a Christian understanding of transcendence. Can you speak into that a little further? Yes. Um, a lot of talk about transcendence will tend to be very general, particularly if we're talking about the transcendence of God. People will, will speak very generally about God's presence to the world. And often that comes out of a, a quite proper desire to speak to the world at large and not just to Christians, and not just within the church, understandably. But I think we need to be pretty clear on that, that in the New Testament, the writers are seeing the world through this very particular historical happening in Jesus Christ, in the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Uh, That is giving them the lens through which they see the whole. So it's not that they're not interested in the whole, the creation, no, or interested in, it's not as if they're not interested in what happens beyond the church. Of course they are. But they're interpreting it always, over and over again, through what's happened in Jesus. And the more they focus on what happens in Jesus, they realize this God who's revealed himself there is, is a threefold God. This, uh, Jesus is the one who speaks of his Abba, his Father, and the power of the Spirit now works in us so that we can share in that. So it becomes Trinitarian. And my concern is simply, if we're going to address these issues in culture, let's not be ashamed of that particularity. Mm-hmm. Now, you talk about limits and so forth. A lot of transcendence talk happens on the edges. We say, here's where language breaks down. God must, therefore, be beyond language. Well, let's be careful of that. There's a truth there, 
language can't contain God. We can't have him in language. We can't wrap our linguistic fingers around him in that sense. No. But if we take Jesus seriously, what we're saying there, Jesus has come as a human being. And what's he done? He's spoken. Mm-hmm. He's used language. So he hasn't just met us at the edge. He's met us at the center of human life, the, where we speak. And he has gathered disciples around him who speak. He has conversations. Though disciples create a community, what does the community do? It speaks. So God has reformed language from the inside. Mm. He hasn't just met us at the edge. I mean, that's just that's what, it's one example. How we need to rethink transcendence in New Testament terms, and therefore we can say quite rightly, God transcends language, and that God can't be contained by language. But that doesn't mean we stop speaking. Right. <laughs> I mean, if I say, I say to my wife, uh, Rachel, I say, I love you. Uh, that's hopelessly inadequate. It doesn't contain the truth. It doesn't. It doesn't grasp it. But it's still true. Mm-hmm. It's still true. It's still got a purchase on the reality I'm speaking about. Mm-hmm. And God, we want to say in the Christian faith, God has made that kind of speech about God possible. We can say God is love. He's given us permission. He's authorized us to say that. But when we say it, it can never encapsulate everything we want to say. Of course right. not. But there's always more we can say. Mm-hmm. And somehow we need to hold both those together. Uh, and we need to remember that in the arts um, as well. And the arts, how do the arts fit into that? Well, some of the, let's say the nonverbal arts, when you bring music into connection with words, I think one of the things that music can do is remind you as you're using those words that those words can never say it all. Um, again, well, because almost any really good setter of words, any good song is like this. The music is bringing something that the words can't bring. And very often it's taking those words and it's, it's saying the dimensions of these words, which are not spelt out at this moment by these words, <laughs> right? But are nevertheless there. And there may be other dimensions which this music suggests to you about these words. Mm-hmm. But w- do you see what I'm getting at? Mm-hmm. Which kind of bursts beyond, bursts right. beyond the words. Right. So the music's often, oh, music's often a great reminder yeah. that language can't do it all. Yeah. But that's not to denigrate language. Right. It's to say language is finite. Uh, even though true, um, or can be true, it's fine. They can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really good. It's good news for musicians like us, you see. That's it's right. Good. That's right. Gives us a very good glowing, warm feeling inside. Yes. Makes us feel important. <laughs> <laughs> the danger, of course, is, is we, if we never feel um, responsible to Scripture, mm-hmm. we think, oh, music gives us an all-engulfing, emotional experience, yes. that must be God. Right, right. That's the danger. Yeah. That's the danger. Yeah. That's the danger of idolatry. Mm-hmm. So, or the idea, even some Christians, I'm afraid, say this. They say, now that I'm into music, I can drop all those words. I can, who needs the Bible? Who needs doctrine? Uh-huh. Uh, no, we don't, uh, you know, that, that, that's a dangerous thing yeah. to say, I think. Well, you used a phrase in the book that comes to mind on that when you said, the spell of the sublime is such that it makes us believe the unrepresentable is somehow truer than the representable. Golly, that's good for you. Did I write that? That's very <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if not, I'll take credit for that one. Now, you mentioned that it's sublime. You see, that, that's an idea that came up, very powerful idea, and it's still very much around in our culture. And it arose in the, in the 18th century. 
And the sublime, what they're referring to is an experience that's overwhelming. Mm -hmm. You stand in front of a mountain scene. You think, oh, wow, this is amazing. Or you see a surfer, a tiny surfer and a huge wave behind the surfer. It's an experience of being overwhelmed. What you say in America, awesome. It's, <laughs> it's experience of awesomeness uh, uh, that exceeds anything we can grasp with concepts and anything we can say. And this became a very uh, powerful focus of interest in the 18th and later in the 19th century as well. And quickly got assimilated to the arts because it was said the arts can really do this. Mm -hmm. The danger of it is it can suggest that if you're dealing with the sublime, you can and should leave language, say, or pictures or concepts behind. And that language is always going to pull you away from the infinite mm -hmm. because the infinite is utterly beyond language. And so you're left, I'm afraid, in the sublime very often with this very amorphous, very indistinct, cloudy, hazy infinity mm -hmm. that's very overpowering. I mean, the, the earlier understanding of the sublime, the sublime was something you're really quite frightened of. Mm -hmm. And then we need to rethink all that Christianly. God's infinity is not something, first of all, we should be frightened of. It's first of all God's love, and judgment comes out of his love. So it, it shouldn't be overpowered. If we're overpowered by God, it's overpowered by his goodness. First of all, yes, the judgment will come, but that's always an outworking of his love. Um, also in the sublime, we shouldn't think it means we have, therefore, to leave language behind. Why not? Because God's taken language seriously. Yeah. He's come as a human being. He's... He's interacted with us as speaking human beings. Mm -hmm. History of Israel as well takes words seriously. Mm -hmm. So it does, God doesn't live in a non-linguistic zone, so to speak. Right. Uh, he's taken language seriously. Yeah. So the sublime is a very, very powerful idea in modern culture, although a lot of people would never use the language in, in the strict sense. And that's what I'm getting at there. It's almost as if we think if you can't speak it, it must be more profound mm -hmm. than if you can. Right. That's a big danger. Yeah, whereas what I hear you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but it seems like for the Christian, and particularly for the Christian artist, we have an opportunity to find the sublime, to find the transcendence of God in the particular. Exactly. Everything we're searching for in the sublime, and that we're longing for and yearning for, God has already provided, mm -hmm. and He's provided in a way that makes us realize some of our searching was for the wrong thing or for the wrong kind of experience. Mm -hmm. That's the key thing. That's very good. That's, you, you put that very well. I ought to have you as my agent. <laughs> I'll send you an invoice for my work. It's not, I mean, of course, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, Turner's landscapes, for instance, are just kind of overwhelming. Um, and indeed, I do a lot of mountain climbing and whatever, and I know that sense. It's wonderful. Yeah. But I think since becoming a Christian, I look at those mountains and I say, what an amazing gift of God. Yeah. Uh-huh. This beauty speaks of ultimately of the beauty of God. Yeah. This is gift. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't have to be like this. Right. And I didn't have to be here. To yes. Return, but I am here. Thank you, Lord. Mm -hmm. That that's different from saying, "Wow, this is overpowering. I'm pretty terrified." Um, but wow, it's awesome, and I just love the experience. Uh huh. <laughs> Those two are very different things. They are very different. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not as if Christians must be frightened of 
mm-hmm. landscape or nature or whatever. But if you see it through the eyes of Christ and the Trinity, you're always seeing it as, as a love gift. Yes. As something that didn't have to be, but was because of the goodness of God. Yes. That's a very different thing. It is. And I love that you keep going back to that. It didn't have to be this way, yeah. but he made it this way. Absolutely. God no. didn't have to create the world. That's right. But he did. Yes. And it makes sense given the God of love that he is. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an incredibly important thing because we tend to view the word, you know, two words, two senses of the word given. Uh, one is when we say it is a given fact, which is a kind of bare, it's just the way things are. Right. So I look, well, I look at you, I look at the things around, I just say, no, it's just given. They're just there. That kind of neutral thereness. Mm-hmm. Most of us live our lives like that. Right. Um, but in the Christian faith, nothing is ever just there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't have to be. Yeah. And it didn't have to be in this form. So th- you and this interview, it didn't have to be, but it is. Mm-hmm. And the wise thing is then to perceive it as gift, an opportunity. Very good. What can come out of this that glorifies God, which is rather than just, it's another given appointment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. That, that's a hard... That's a hard thing, because most, most of our lives are practical atheists. We look at the world, it's just there. Mm-hmm. It's just there. <laughs> I love that distinction between this neutral given and then given. Very different. It's interesting we've taken that word given and just neutralized it. Mm-hmm. It's like the word nature. The uh, Bible has no, has no word <laughs> like nature, uh, because in non-Christian world, nature is just, it's just there. It's the non-human world that's just there. No, Bible only speaks of creation. Mm-hmm. Now, the minute you've used that word creation, you've implied a creator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the natural world is never just there. It's always God's creation. Yes. Always. Yes. And that's the way we're always to look at it. The God's committed to it, and one day it will be recreated. Yeah. That's a very different perception of it nature. It is. Um, nature, you could say, it's one, of the, it's one of the worst inventions of the modern age, the concept of nature. Wow. It's a thought, because yeah. you've just neutralized it. Right. You just turn it into bare physical fact. Sure. Well, Jeremy, I know our time is almost up here, but I want to ask you one final question. And this is a broad question, but I feel that it's an important question to ask. So where do you see the relationship between art and theology going? And where do you hope to see this relationship go from here? I would love all those involved in the conversation to plow much more deeply into Scripture and to Christian tradition that is faithful to Scripture. I mean the great creeds of the Church, uh, classic creeds and confessions of the Christian Church. I think too often we've said, well, we've done that bit because the Bible doesn't say much about art, and therefore we go on to philosophers of art very often, which may be okay, um, and we've too quickly run from Christian wisdom. So what I do here at the Divinity School is I teach, I teach Christian theology, I teach doctrinal theology, and I do courses on theology and the arts. And I want people to see that those two can go together. So my great hope for the future is that Christians who believe in the power of Scripture and have discovered the Trinitarian God of Jesus Christ in a powerful way will not be ashamed of that and believe there is always more fruit to come out out of that vision, what I call the scriptural imagination mm. of God, that, that, that there's always more yeah. there. 
we don't have to jump immediately out of that in order to talk about the arts. No, we need to go deeper into that in order to talk more intelligently to our culture about the arts. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. It's been an absolute delight. I hope you enjoy the rest of the book. <laughs> I'll call you back if I have some questions. That's terrific. Thank you for your questions. They've been very, very astute. And as always, thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and visit makersandmystics.com for more episodes and to join our creative collective. We'll see you again next week.